Hello, 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 and happy new year. Happy 2022. Welcome back to Netflix, Coffee, and Questioning Humanity. First and foremost, the elephant in the room. I know I sound absolutely horrible. I hope it's not too much of an annoyance because I really, really love this episode and I really want to put it out there. I've been looking forward to it for months, but I totally get it if my sniffly nastiness is not pleasant to your ear holes. And on top of that, as if that wasn't already horrible, the audio will be a little bit inconsistent. I had to re-record quite a few parts because they just did not sound good at all. But the entirety of this episode was about uh, three and a half hours of recording. And again, I'm very sick. I already pre-recorded a bunch of other episodes and my throat cannot handle re-recording this all over again. The re-records were hard enough. It's nothing that makes the show unlistenable, unlistenable. It's not terrible. It's certainly not my best quality of audio. Not that I'm ever great with it. But there are moments where it'll go from like, oh, that's mediocre audio to, oh, wow, she sounds really clear there. Oh, interesting. So that's what we're rolling with. With all that said, I had a lot of fun with this episode and I hope you enjoy it as well. This is the best of streaming 2021 and the worst of streaming 2021. You know, I don't miss an opportunity to roast. I love roasting. So I had to add the worst, of course. I can't remember last year's episode if I did the best and the worst by movies and shows. You know, I don't know if I split them up or put them together like, oh, here's the best of everything and here's the worst. I don't even know if I did the worst. I am the worst, okay? But who cares? It's a new year, it's new streaming, and these are my Oscars, my Emmys, my Razzies. And we all know that my taste is exquisite. So you know this is going to be a good time. Buckle up. It's going to be a long episode, a big mama episode. And before we jump into it, let me just get into some really basic things just to get it out of the way. These are not all 2021 releases. However, these are things that I watched in 2021, things that I streamed that I enjoyed. I do try and focus on newer releases, but you know, if something came out in 2018 and I felt like it was trash enough to be put on the worst list, or I feel like it was amazing enough to put on the best list, then it creeped its way onto the list, okay? I mean, what do you want me to do? Also, this is just for fun. Movies and shows are all subjective. I'm sure you hate some of my favorites. I'm positive of it. And I'm sure you think that some of my worst picks are works of art. You're wrong, but it's okay. I still love you. We can still be friends. That's just how the cookie's gonna crumble this episode. We're just happy to be here. Happy to be in 2022, okay? Grab your caffeine, get yourself locked in, and let's do this. Friendly reminder, this is an explicit podcast, which means I may discuss explicit content while most certainly using explicit language. So little ears, those easily offended, and my mom and dad may want to bow out. Now, on with the show. (laughs) 
As far as drinks go, I am so sorry to disappoint you. I have nothing exciting. And I'm probably not going to have anything crazy exciting for the next few episodes because I'm pre-recording these. And spoiler alert, I'm going to be sick in every single one. So I'm most likely drinking tea in every single one. And I will most likely repeat myself as if I haven't already stated that I'm drinking an entire box of tea in every episode. It's probably a bad idea to do hours of recording with a horrible sore throat, but you know what? I'm not one for making good decisions. I got other shit to work on, so I gotta pre-record and get that out of the way, even if I sound like shit. And despite sounding like shit and feeling like shit and drinking the same shit, I am really excited about these next few episodes. They're so much fun. I'm excited about really every episode. What else is the point, right? I'm doing unnecessary rambling when I shouldn't be, when we have about, oh, I don't know, nine hours worth of podcasts to get into. I started 2021 off watching the new season of Cobra Kai, and I was having like an American Horror Story rewatch marathon. And I was also into super feel-good stuff. I actually made a whole episode called Feel Good Shit on Netflix last year. Because much like this year, I started last year off feeling like shit. And I just wanted to immerse myself in like feel-good content, you know? I love how I say that after I mentioned my American Horror Story rewatch marathon. I mean, that can be feel-good stuff, right? Yeah, kind of. Not really. Pretty heavy. It's not like I was watching the feel-good shit for the entire month. I was watching the crown really that one cycle cycle oh my god this is what happens when you encompass yourself in america's next top model for seven months you say cycles instead of seasons if you haven't checked out my evolution of america's next top model please do it's four parts it's really good stuff but anywho yeah i was wicked into the crown i thought that was gonna be like my favorite show of the year spoiler alert uh it didn't even rank in my top 10 so That goes to show what a year it was for shows on Netflix for me personally, because I really liked The Crown. But before we dip into the best of shows, let's roast, shall we? That's what we do best over here, right? And I'm going to warn you right off the bat, just like I did before, I know most, if not all, of these shows are deeply loved and have very passionate, very scary fandom. So please, I beg, don't make it a personal thing. Let's not make it weird. I think I have shitty taste too. It's okay. We have that in common. All right. Also, I am not going to give spoilers for 99% of the shows and movies that I'm going to be talking about. If I am going to give a spoiler, and I know I am because I have notes here, I will warn you way ahead of time. That way, if you want to watch these shows or movies, you can do that without them being spoiled and you can develop your own opinion. And with all of those warnings out of the way, let's get into the worst shows of 2021, starting with number 10. I know, I know. How can this be? How can the morning show be on my worst list? Let me give a brief description of the show in case you've never heard me bitch and moan and praise this show. The Morning Show is an inside look at the modern workplace through the lens of the people who help wake America up. Pulling back the curtain on early morning television, that's a very general bio that I found on the internet. And I think it sums it up quite nicely without giving anything away. I know, I know, I have some splainin' to do. I know. 
This is a show that I am actually a fan of. Why is it on my worst list then? Because I was so disappointed with this new season, season two. Be ready to hear that word disappointed a lot, okay? It's a common theme throughout my dislikes. Speaking for all of these shows, I really went into these thinking that I'd love them. So it hits a little bit harder for me. And it makes me sad. Some, like The Morning Show, only disappointed me for this one season, like I said. Pretty sure this was on my favorites list last year. For season one, it was incredible. I felt like season one was so perfect and I had so much hope and hype built for season two. Season two just fell so flat for me though. I think because of COVID, they had to change a lot of shit to make it work. And under the circumstances, I'm sure they did great. They made it work to the best of their abilities. And I was really rooting for this show, as is apparent in many of my prior episodes. I was like, oh, it's getting good. It's getting juicy. And yeah, there were some juicy moments, but they didn't feel authentic and or they were incredibly predictable. I did enjoy the last episode of the season. It was really funny. I always love to see Alex Levy unhinged, but it wrapped up nothing, really. It felt very incomplete and messy and disingenuous. Maybe they will make that right in season three. I hope so, and I will be welcoming it with open arms. But until then, it's a no from me, dog. Number nine, Ted Lasso. Small-time American football coach Ted Lasso is hired to coach a professional football club in England, despite having no experience coaching football. I gotta say this now, I gotta get it out of the way early. Some of my explanations will be drawn out and explained and maybe long. Others, like my explanation for why I don't like Ted Lasso, will be very short and sweet. I'm aware that I am in the minority, but I did not find this show interesting in the slightest. It wasn't funny, it wasn't quirky, it wasn't entertaining. I was fucking bored, okay? Didn't even care to get to episode two. Maybe I'll give it another chance in the future, but right now I have zero interest. And don't give me any of that shit like, oh, well, how can you tell from just one episode? No, episode one had no fucking redeeming factors at all. I'm not wasting my time. There's so much good shit to watch. If there's one or two redeeming factors and I'm like, oh, okay, like, yeah, that's kind of weird. But, you know, I'm into it. I'm into it. It's it's slightly entertaining. Then, okay, I'm, I'm on the hook. Drag me to episode two and we'll see if it gets better. I know, I know Jason Sudeikis is like a comedy legend. I agree, I know, but this show, I I couldn't see any of that. I can't think of one thing that I liked about this show at all. There's my short and sweet explanation of why Ted Lasso is at number nine. Number eight, Cowboy Bebop. A ragtag crew of bounty hunters chase down the galaxy's most dangerous criminals. They'll save the world for the right price. Uh, similar to Ted Lasso, I just couldn't with Cowboy Bebop, really. I have yet to watch the original, so it's not me being like one of those weird gatekeeping fans. It's like, I don't like it because it's new and we don't like change. The concept and idea is cool as fuck. I mean, obviously I'm not the minority because it got canceled already, you know? So, sorry. But yeah, it all seemed cool. Like everything on paper sounded like it would be perfect. 
but it completely flew by me in execution. I really did not like it. It was like a neon Blade Runner Matrix anime blend in my brain, which should sound cool. Live action anime should work. It should be interesting. But I don't think personally that I could enjoy it the way that I'd like to. So yeah, sorry it got canceled. Number seven, lock and key. Following their father's murder, three siblings move into a house filled with reality-bending keys. From the comics by Joe Hill and Gabriel Rodriguez. I waited so long to watch this. I really felt like this was going to be a banger for me. Lock and key, again, on paper, is everything I should love in a show. But it just did nothing for me at all. I felt really weird watching it. I I don't know who it's for. There are moments where it feels very kiddish, very juvenile, and that's fine, right? And at other times, I'm watching some very adult moments. The music would feel whimsical and haunting like I was watching something for kids. And then boom, we'd see a very graphic scene of the dad getting fucking shot and killed or a teenager getting mounted at a party. The pace was also really slow and I didn't find the acting all that great. The story seemed like it was almost there for me. A great concept with amazing potential, but it did not go the distance. Not for me anyways. I'm fully aware, again, everyone loves this fucking show. I know I'm way off on an island all by myself. I am going to keep saying that, to keep reminding you, because I promise one of your faves will show up on my worst list and you're going to be like, wait, everyone loves that show. I know, I know, or movie. I'm just trying to warn you as much as possible. When I wasn't bored to tears watching Lock and Key, I was just uncomfortable trying to understand the show's idea identity, I guess. I don't know if that makes sense, but it's the best way I can explain it. Number six, Night Stalker, the hunt for a serial killer. A young detective and legendary homicide investigator race against the clock to stop a nocturnal monster responsible for a series of seemingly disconnected murders and sexual assaults in 1985 Los Angeles. So this may be a case of me not understanding what the intention of this docuseries was. I was expecting a true crime docuseries about Richard Ramirez. This was not about Ramirez. This was about Gil Carillo and his investigation. I apologize if I'm not pronouncing his name correctly. It's all about the police work and that sort of angle. And I'm sure that's interesting to people, but it wasn't interesting for me. It felt really drawn out and boring, which the Night Stalker case is deeply disturbing and not at all boring. So feeling bored watching something about the Night Stalker was very odd to me. I did not care about footprints and fucking shoes. I wanted a profile of Richard Ramirez. Maybe I wouldn't mind the investigation angle if it was done right in the future. I won't rule that out. And again, this is probably me just going into something with higher expectations or just like completely different expectations. I was going in asking for a glass of milk and I was handed orange juice kind of thing, you know? So it was a big old nope for me. Number five, another show that I'm almost positive was on 2020's best list, 
Cobra Kai. 34 years after the events of the 1984 All-Valley Karate Tournament, a down-and-out Johnny Lawrence seeks redemption by reopening the infamous Cobra Kai dojo, reigniting his rivalry with a now-successful Daniel LaRusso. That is an outdated summary, but, you know, okay, no spoilers here. Ah, what was this season about? And this was not the season that just came out, either. I actually finished watching that like an hour ago and you might as well fuck it we'll just put it on this list too we'll just lump it all together last january and this january's cobra kai were pretty much equally disappointing for me it was all about getting my hopes crushed again and i really do love this show i do maybe i'm just growing out of it because it's so fucking corny i can barely take it and i knew it was corny in season one But there's something about like the high school corniness that is just like not it for me. I can't with these kids in a corny situation in high school. I don't care about your high school romance in a corny way. I don't care about your school dance in a corny way. I can say positively that I like the last two episodes of the newest season. Those had a lot of corny moments in them, but they also had some real tense spots where I felt like something big was really on the line and they did some interesting things with twists and bringing old characters back. I thought that was really cool. I thought I would enjoy the parts of the previous season, not this current season, the 2021 season where Daniel goes to Japan. I don't think that's a spoiler. Also a season ago, so whatever. I thought I would enjoy those episodes more than I did. They were very boring. I think Daniel LaRusso for me is in the same category as like a fucking Captain America. Mr. Always do the right thing. Mr. I'm so, you know, high above everyone else with my nose in the sky. I fucking hate those kind of characters. I hate them. The noble kind, you know? So yeah, it didn't do it for me. I'm sorry if that was a messy description. I just kind of fucking decided last minute that I'd throw in this season too. No notes or anything on that. Just kind of babbling. This is exactly why I have notes. Now you see. Number four. Oh man. (sighs) Number four is And Just Like That. I am going to rant, okay? First, let's get the description. The women of Sex and the City transition from the friendships they had in their 30s to a more complicated reality of life and friendship in their 50s. Sarah Jessica Parker, Cynthia Nixon, and Kristen Davis return as Carrie, Miranda, and Charlotte, whereas Samantha has moved to London since Kim Cattrall chose not to reprise her role. Let's get a few things straight right off the bat here. There is no sex in the city without Samantha, period. She is the sex. She is the city. There is a clear, empty space without her. Regardless, after huffing and puffing, I wanted to give this show a fair, unbiased shot. And I watched the first few episodes. I I know that this show is not specifically targeting a zillennial like me. I'm fully aware that this is like boomer Gen X shit, okay? I know that. Or the Zillennials with an X or however they, you know what I'm talking about. I know this show isn't for me, okay? But holy shit, how stupid can you be? How out of touch can you be? They try and make the youth, and when I say youth, I mean someone like my fucking age, like mid to late 20s, not even like early 20s, maybe early 20s and teenagers in some regard, but mostly like fucking my age, right? Young millennials. They try and make them seem so far away from reality and so cringe and they act like 
We know nothing about what the world was 10 years ago because I don't know, we know how to order fucking Uber Eats and can run a functioning podcast. Barely, but you know, we can do it. They paint anyone younger than themselves as like angry, vulgar, woke drones. And I'm so fucking tired of that stereotype. Anyone who has had any conversation with more than one person under 30, fuck it, even under 35, would know that that is a cartoonized, blown up version of what the youth is. And I say that with air quotes. We aren't a woke mob. We are passionate about the rights of others and making the voices that have been silenced for fucking years heard. That's not a bad thing. Growing up, I always learned that that's being a nice person. That's helping others. If you are hurting a massive amount of people's feelings and you don't want to take blame simply because you choose not to understand why, because you can't bear to assume responsibility and you can't bear not being a fucking know-it-all for 10 seconds, then I think that you may be the immature, overly sensitive snowflake one here, okay? Whose generation is really the most sensitive? Is it the one who is a big crybaby about being a fucking bully or the people that are like, no, we're not gonna let you bully other people anymore. It's just not gonna happen. (laughs) Cry about cancel culture. Listen, observe, shut the fuck up for a moment so others can speak and don't speak over them anymore. Don't be a fucking child. It's literally toddler behavior. Respect people's life decisions if they aren't hurting anyone, even if you don't understand it, okay? It's just simple. This show irritates me because it perpetuates that narrative when they could do so much good with the audience they have. And let me be clear, who knows? Maybe they will do that with the episodes that are to come. Maybe this is a setup, you know, that this was all done on purpose. This narrative was created on purpose to then, you know, break down that narrative and prove that narrative wrong. That would be super fucking cool. But this was an opportunity for me to rant and get something off my chest. So I took it because that's exactly what this show sparked in me. Also, fuck big, fuck that entire relationship. You know, he's always been a fucking smug cunt, that big. I'm still mad about Aiden Shaw getting his heart broken by Carrie Pick Me, I Can Fix the Bad Boy Brad Shaw. All he wanted was to make furniture and eat fucking burgers and fucking love you, Carrie. No sense was made. After that point in the show, I was like, what, what are we doing here? What are we doing here? I understand that Carrie is a deeply flawed, complex woman, but Jesus fucking Christ, the romanticization, romanticization, romanticizing, you know what the fuck I'm saying, romanticizing Carrie's relationship with Big? I will have nothing to do with it. Nope. I will don't care about this show. Don't care about Carrie. Don't care about the gals if Samantha's not involved. And uh, I do hope they change the narrative uh, because it's annoying. And yeah, that's all I have to say about that. Number three, Fate Wink Saga. Fairies attend a magical boarding school in the other world where they must learn to master their magical powers while navigating love, rivalries, and the monsters that threaten their very existence. I am getting all riled up now after that rant. Whew! Another simple explanation. This show was a waste of a cool concept and a chance to grab a really loved childhood show. 
all the characters were the same. There was no identity. There was no depth or development. It was all cheese, not even good cheese, like bread cheese or a nice refined brie. No, this was canned spray cheese with a fucking broken cap. There was no fantasy fairy feeling, not to me anyway. Bloom was yet another, I'm not like other girls kind of character, you know, that was moody and obnoxious and fucking rude, really. A complete waste of 15 years of A-plus content that they could have expanded on or used. I assume that they took it in, you know, obviously they'd have to do a little research from the original show and it feels like they did nothing but take some names and that was it. It was stupid. I know there's a new season coming out. I don't care about that new season. I won't be watching. And yeah, that's that on Fate Wink Saga. Number two, American Horror Story season 10. Now this will have spoilers. All right, you have been warned. I'll give you a few seconds to fast forward a minute or so. Not even just give you a moment here. Go ahead. Go ahead and hit that 15 seconds forward button. All right. Okay, here we are. Double feature. I'm not even bothering with a summary. I am so angry about this season. So fucking angry. This was the ultimate letdown. The dangling of aliens in our face is the equivalent to the Bonner joke we had in WandaVision. Both with Evan Peters being the butt of that joke. Okay? I bitched about this before, but let me make my feelings known yet again in a clear, concise way. What an incredibly promising start with Red Tide. Mwah. Perfection. Old school American horror story that we love. The setting was great. The characters were intense. Perfection up until the last episode. Maybe the last episode and the half, like the half of the episode before that. And then what did they do? They took that greatness and they flushed it down the fucking toilet. Part two. Oh my goodness. You want to talk about fucking dumb? It was so stupid. It made no sense. The new actors in present day were the worst I have ever seen in television ever. They didn't even give us Kit Walker when the opportunity presented itself on a golden fucking platter. When fans have literally been asking over and over and over again for years, give us aliens, give us Kit Walker, give, give it to us anyway, we'll take it. If we had just been given just a sprinkle of that, just a little mm, drop of water in the fucking desert of this shitstorm of a part two, just to, just to even just say his name, say Kit was here, a fucking background character could have said it, Any, anything, anything, just a KW on a necklace and initials on an extra in the background, we would have taken anything, anything, and you bonnered us, and that's why you're at number two. Anyways, let's get to the number one worst show that I have watched in 2021. You already know what it is. You know what it is. It's fucking Bridgerton. During the Regency era in England, eight close-knit siblings of the powerful Bridgerton family attempt to find love. I absolutely cannot express my hatred for this show. I am going to try, but trust, even if you feel my blood boiling through your ears, know that it's much worse. I'm weird with romance shit. Let's clarify this. If it's done right, I really enjoy corny romance, but most of the time, I really find it insufferable and annoying and cringe, and I cover my eyes. I'm being dead serious. <laughs> I hate romance. 
99% of the time, all right? Like, I love Twilight, duh. That's like Shakespearean romance, okay? Fuck a Romeo and Juliet. That's not even a love story. You know what? That's not a rant to go on. Let's not go down that road. Let's just focus here. All right. Bridgerton. We hate Bridgerton. Okay. So um, I found Bridgerton to be all of the things that I hate. Annoying, cringe, insufferable, romantic, right? And that's just the tip of the iceberg. I really don't give a shit that it's not historically accurate. I actually think that's kind of fun. I know that's a big gripe for some of the Bridgerton haters, but I'm not involved in that specific Bridgerton hate club. I'm in my own kind of club over here. I think, you know, go off with your Billie Eilish harps and Ariana Grande music at the ball. I think that's cool. Dope. But if you are looking for a historical piece that is accurate to the times, then you might be disappointed with this. One of my gripes is or are the characters. No personality, no fucking salt, no pepper, boiled chicken, flavorless, gray, and bland. Uh, Aside from the queen, I don't remember her name, but she was, she was fun. But the real issue with Bridgerton, the real kicker that made me so fucking confused with the hype around this show. Like before Squid Game, this was the most successful show on Netflix. So I'm sitting around wondering what the fuck is wrong with me. So nothing happens. Nothing happens. Like, truly, what, what is happening in this show? Nothing fucking happened. How do we have a show here? Like, we didn't go from point A to point B. We didn't even learn the fucking alphabet. I'm convinced that people like this show because it's pretty people in pretty clothes with pretty camera work and pretty music. And... That's really all this show consists of, so I don't know what else to say. Moving on from roast to boast. That was stupid. I apologize. Let's just stick to the notes here instead. Best shows, right? Uh, 2021 was coming out of my comfort zone for me. That was the theme when it came to watching television. I like watching the same shit over and over and over again, and I just tried to plow through it. A small little goal of mine for 2021 and I did it. I found some really phenomenal shows uh, but there are also some oldies that really stayed nuzzled close to my heart okay. Let's start with number 10. Lula Rich which I know is a docuseries but it's a series. It's not a movie. It counts as a show in my opinion. The billion dollar clothing empire Lula Rowe stand accused of misleading thousands of women with their multi-level marketing platform. Oh boy, when I tell you I was so excited when this came out and had the reception that it did. So many women and so many men are completely blindsided by MLM scams, which I take any fucking chance to rag on these fucking stupid schemes. They literally ruin lives by using predatory tactics to collect more and more people to join their scam. They prey on mainly women like stay-at-home moms and military spouses who want to contribute financially to their family but have understandable limitations. They prey on people's biggest insecurities, mainly superficial things like weight and appearance. Like I mentioned during my Evolution of America's Next Top Model series when I was discussing Tyra Banks and her failed MLM, think of the MLMs that you know. Herbalife, Isagenix, 
it works, thrive. They target your weight because they know that 99% of America, at least, is weight obsessed. We want to lose weight and we want to lose it fast and we want to show it off and maybe make a little money as we're doing it. And also the camaraderie, the togetherness of a, of a MLM, the girl boss structure, all of that is extremely appealing. Also, I highly recommend researching the ingredients and owners of those companies, by the way. I always say first search the brand and then search controversies next to it or ingredients next to it or scam next to it if you're feeling, you know, spicy. Other MLMs focus on makeup, skincare, fat. Other MLMs focus on makeup, skincare, fashion, etc., etc. You get the idea. Lularoo was and is no different. And this was such a great docuseries that showed the rise and fall of many people tangled up in this shit show. I think it displayed the mask that Mark and Deanne Stidham, the founders of LuLaRoe, share. That bright, bubbly, car salesman, evil, greasy mask. And they even showed the mask being ripped away in these very intimate moments. They showed how contradictory the pair were in practice and in preaching. And overall, it was stylish. It had great music. It was very bright, even when discussing the dark shit. And they added a lot of comedic breaks when necessary that we don't often see in docu-series. You can have a serious subject and discuss it well while also giving the viewer a breather. It was very authentic and again the music was great and I loved it. Before I even get into number nine I just have to share. I don't know what's been happening. I don't claim to know anything about anything about audio. I just skate by as you can tell with my poor to mediocre sound quality and for some reason twice it has done this feedback thing where it goes and rings like to the point where it's a fucking dog whistle in my ears and my ears are already like radiating like they hurt so bad and then to add this twice I'm lucky I'm still here I was ready to throw everything out the fucking window but here we are number nine Loki Loki the god of mischief steps out of his brother's shadow to embark on an adventure that takes place after the events of Avengers Endgame. I'll keep this one brief as well, just in case you, for some reason or another, are living under a rock and have not seen this show. I don't want to give any spoilers because I know MCU people or really just regular people, but when it comes to the MCU, get real butthurt about spoilers, even with a show that came out last year. But also it could spoil a lot of things in the Marvel Cinematic Universe that are recently coming out. And yeah, it's a whole thing. So I'll keep it short, sweet and no spoilers. Loki is probably my favorite MCU show to date. It was absolutely brilliant. Tom Hiddleston's performance was fresh and also gave us a really intimate look at Loki. Each episode was perfectly paced and had a perfect injection of thrill and excitement, but not so much that it overwhelmed us. The visuals were insane and it was similar to Doctor Strange in a weird way. I don't know if that makes sense, but for me it does. Uh, And for me it was also much better because I need to take a fucking Dramamine before I watch anything 
thing involving Doctor Strange and his acid trip geometrical fever dream. Owen Wilson, the legend, was absolutely amazing, of course, as always. Gugu Mabatha Raw, a rising star, she was fantastic as well. The finale, though, that finale, unreal. It was like movie level theatrics. The people at Marvel truly know how to shatter a million piece puzzle and slowly allow us viewers to put together the pieces. Loved it. This next one may be a cheat, but I have my reasons, okay? Tied for number eight is you and behind her eyes. If we are talking about pure gut emotional love for a show, you takes my number eight spot easily. I binged watch the new season in a day, a single day. It was fucking beautiful and intense. Not as perfect as season two. Like I said before, nothing will beat the twist in season two. If you want my full thoughts and predictions for next season, I have a breakdown in one of my past episodes. I always have everything timestamped too, in case you just want to hear that part, but obviously I'm not going to give spoilers here. I talk in depth about it in that episode. So yeah, like I said, if I'm going off gut feelings, you easily takes the spot. But if I'm talking about what show deserves to be here based off the quality of acting, writing, and imagination, and really just the production of the show in general, I'd have to pick behind her eyes. I totally forgot to give you a summary of you. Uh, Joe is like a book nerd, sociopath, psychopath. I don't really know the difference. And he's constantly finding new women to obsess over and fix and love. And it's all just fucking awful and wonderful all at the same time. And in this new season, again, I don't want to spoil anything from prior seasons too, just in case you haven't seen you. It's just all thrilling and uh, romantic in a dark sense and I mean that by not fucking romantic at all only weirdos find this romantic and also this season is a bit erotic so if you're into that then thumbs up for you but yeah anyway we're moving on to behind her eyes a single mother enters a world of twisted mind games when she begins an affair with her psychiatrist boss while secretly befriending his mysterious wife this show is fucking insane it kind of starts slow but it like like steadily builds and builds and builds with how fucked up it is. And it really is worth the wait because the twist, I have never seen a twist like this in a show ever. And I think you will either say, what the fuck in an amazing way or in a that was so stupid kind of a way, which is fine. It's polarizing. Like I said, the acting is great. It's suspenseful. It's thrilling. And the romance is just right. It's not cringe. This show also has some erotic vibes. You know what? I didn't even do this on purpose, but you is like diet behind her eyes. Or would it be behind her eyes as diet you? Either way, I think if you like you, if you like you, <laughs> that sounds really weird. Uh, but you get what I'm saying. You would like behind her eyes. Very, very similar in a lot of ways. It's just a little bit darker. And the twist is way more out of left fucking field. I was really hooked. Number seven, Eli Roth's History of Horror. Masters of Horror, icons and stars who define the genre, join writer, producer, director Eli Roth to explore horror's biggest themes and reveal the inspirations and struggles behind its past and present. History of Horror came out in 2018, but I just discovered it. 
It's genius, amazing, incredible, all of the words, all of the positive adjectives, all of the things. It deep dives into so much that I love about horror. And I get to hear from people in the horror world like Jordan Peele, Jason Blum, Robert England, Linda Blair, Rob Zombie. And we get to hear all about their favorite horror movies, their least favorite horror movies, behind the scenes experiences on films they worked on. It's just so great. It was everything. I never knew I needed. The first and second season are definitely the best. I feel like Eli is kind of running out of ideas. The last season was not the best. It was still very interesting. But I think if the topics expanded quite a bit, it could be more interesting and stay fresh like the first two seasons were. Like if we talked about epic horror soundtracks or horror novels like Tanana Reeve Do. I believe she might have been in one episode already. I can't quite recall. Perhaps not, but if she wasn't, she would be amazing for this show. Talk about real-life events that inspired horror films. Talk about modern horror films. They sprinkle it in a little bit, but a lot of it is like all about the 70s and the 80s. Discuss indie, smaller horror films that need like a little bit of comeuppance. The cross between religion and horror. All of these things would make really great topics. Again, they've been brushed on very lightly within other topics. It's kind of been buried. But I think if they got really creative and experimental with the direction of the show, it could have some serious legs. This thing could go on forever. There's also a podcast, which is a lot of fun. My favorite episodes were with Ari Aster, Greg Nicotero, Rob Zombie, and of course, Quentin Tarantino. The man can just fucking talk for two hours straight, no breath. And that's always great for me. Even though I wasn't completely taken aback by this season, I'm very excited to see what they come up with for the next few seasons. I'm sure they'll be fantastic. You can stream this show on Shudder. If you don't have Shudder, but you have AMC+, Shudder is included. You just have to search Eli Roth. The mainframe of AMC+, is so fucking garbage. Garbaggio. I, I can't go on that rant right now. It makes absolutely no fucking sense, but it should be on the main page of the Shutter Hub. If not, search Eli Roth and it should come up. Sometimes it's stupid and it doesn't, but Shutter is included with AMC+. Number six, Visions. Seven Japanese animation studios bring their unique perspectives to the Star Wars universe through a series of short films. This show is beautiful, or shows a short films. These films were so beautiful. This whole idea was so gutsy and creative and fucking cool. And also, I think this is like really good anime. I think it did its job. It served its purpose to bring a cool freshness and lightness to Star Wars with some of the best animation studios out there. Also, the fucking lightsabers. Every episode had a brilliant, beautiful spin on them, and I loved it. Another simple explanation. I mean, I thought each episode was gorgeous, and I was thoroughly entertained. It's that simple. Number five, Midnight Mass. The arrival of a charismatic priest brings miracles, mysteries, and renewed religious fervor to a dying town. Mike Flanagan is a genius, truly a fucking genius. You know him from the House of Bly Manor and Hill House and Doctor Sleep and Gerald's Game. He also has uh, an episode on Eli Roth's podcast and he's featured within History of Horror. And the episode on the podcast was one of my favorite episodes ever. 
This story was so emotional and visually stunning. I felt completely transported to Crockett Island. It is a fictional place. It's like the small tight-knit community on an island. The star of the show is Hamish Linkletter, who plays a new priest in town. His performance is absolutely chilling, but so soft and charming at the same time. Raul Kohli, who plays the sheriff, is also incredible. He reminds me of Jim from The Office in an alternate universe. I cannot explain why. Raul kind of looks like John Krasinski in a way. I can't explain it any further than that. It might just be a vibe. As soon as I saw him, I'm like, that's Jim from The Office in another universe if he was a sheriff on an island. But besides being a parallel universe to The Office, it's beyond horror and beyond a psychological thriller. It's like if you took those things and blended them with like an art film, but a show and pure majesticness, that's what it is. That's the smoothie that is Midnight Mass. I felt emotionally invested in the story within the first, I don't know, 20 minutes. I was on an emotional roller coaster the whole fucking time. Every character is complex. The storyline is complex. The ending is complex and beautiful. And there was one scene where it's not really a spoiler, but there are two characters that are discussing what they think death is like. And I was so uncomfortable watching it. And I could step outside of that uncomfortability and understand that that's how I was supposed to feel. That was the purpose. And that made it even more beautiful, even though I was uncomfortable. I don't know if that makes any sense, but I appreciated the art of it so much that I wasn't bothered by the uncomfortableness. I do like that this is not going to have a sequel. I like that it's wrapped up in a tricky bow. Even if I want more, it's done. It's pushed into the corner. And that's that. There will be no more. It's artsy and smart horror. And I can't wait for more of Mike Flanagan's work. He has a few series coming. I believe one is Midnight Club. I don't know if that's a series or a movie. And also The Fall of the House of Usher, which Poe and Flanagan, please, I'm on board all the way. Number four, Squid Game. Hundreds of cash-strapped contestants accept an invitation to compete in children's games for a tempting prize. But the stakes are deadly. Have you heard of Squid Game? Probably not, right? Like, I threw on this little-known small show knowing nothing but that it was a Korean show. I heard one bit randomly on a podcast I listened to about someone saying, oh, I wouldn't make it past round one of Squid Game. So I was like, oh, it must be like a silly little game show, like The Floor is Lava. Cute. Like, that'll be fun. And I threw it on, not reading the description, barely glancing at the art. All I saw was like the colorful stairs. Didn't notice the blood or anything. And I saw like little PlayStation symbols on these little like pink dressed people, you know? I was like, oh, fun. (laughs) And that was that, right? I threw it on 75% distracted because I was frying my hair with bleach. And as I'm having a meltdown about my hair, I'm like, wow, this game show is pretty dark. Like, what is the story? Maybe this is something they do in Korea. Maybe this is like something that's just culturally different. Maybe they start their game show with a backstory that's kind of weird and dark. That's fine. I'm kind of into it. Then it just kept going. And next thing I know, 
there's that doll gun thing. And my expectations were a birthday cake. And I was served a pair of Doc Martens filled with mac and cheese. That's how far out of the stratosphere my expectations were, okay? And I still loved it. Not to be too repetitive here, but the acting was chef's kiss. The plot was so fucking creative. Every little piece of this show's puzzle was perfect. It's got something for everyone. Dramatic moments, thrilling moments, hilarious moments, all of it. I was sucked in like a vacuum and I hope we get to see an equally incredible season two one day. I actually just finished my notes on an episode that is completely dedicated to Squid Game and I wrote my notes on this episode before I did my deep dive and reading the note back I was like then there's a gun doll thing and now I like know the origin of the doll gun thing and why it was there and what the relevance was and the themes that related to it. So yeah be ready for a deep dive into Squid Game sometime soon. Loved it, loved it, loved it. Number three, you knew it had to happen. Big Mouth season five. Even for a cartoon character, going through puberty isn't easy for a young person. Andrew is learning that firsthand and he's experiencing the nightmare that is growing up in this animated series geared towards adults. Very much geared towards adults. Underline that. Along for the ride are friends Nick and Jesse who develop a budding romance along the way. The comedy veterans who lend their voices to Big Mouth include John Mulaney, Nick Kroll, Maya Rudolph, and Jordan Peele. Near and dear to my heart is Big Mouth. If this list was based solely off what I watched the most, Big Mouth would be light years away from everything. Maybe The Office would be a close second. I've watched season five of Big Mouth every day since it came out until maybe a week or two ago. After I watched it through like three times, I would just put it on while I was falling asleep. And sometimes I still do. I might even, you know, put it on tonight to fall asleep. I loved this season. It was funny as shit. Outrageous as ever. The writing keeps getting better. Nothing is too taboo or weird to talk about. And I live for that. They perfectly take our awkward pubescent experiences uh, and find a way to make characters and scenarios that are so funny and hyperbolic and really clever as well. So long live Big Mouth. As long as they're putting out new seasons, I don't think it'll be off my favorites list. So bite me if you don't like it. Number two, Dexter New Blood. Set 10 years after Dexter Morgan went missing in the eye of Hurricane Laura, he is now living under an assumed name in upstate New York, Iron Lake, far from his original home in Miami. Oh, how my heart sings for this new Dexter series. This could have gone wrong in so many ways. So many ways. I don't want to spoil a lick of this. So I won't even mention the teeny tiny fuck up. But I will say it's an inconsistency with the timeline. Other than that, this show is perfection. It's got the same sass as the original. It's beautifully shot. The acting is dynamite. The comedy is perfectly placed. The location is stunning. Even the recaps, you know, like the previously on Dexter New Blood, are entertaining and engaging and edited just so. I'm on the edge of my seat after every episode. Even though there are moments that are somewhat predictable, there are still these unexpected beats along the way that really get you. I'm really hoping for a season two. 
At the time of recording this, I am just finishing up the penultimate and I have no idea how they could wrap this up with one episode. I see a massive cliffhanger for this season, a new opening title similar to the original opening title, if you know, you know, that includes the other person in Dexter's life, if you know, you know, and I think season two focuses on that relationship. That's all I'll say. I'm also watching the original series because I couldn't wait six days for a new episode. I needed my Dexter fill. And watching it like as a parallel is fascinating and I highly recommend it. It also made me buy the book Darkly Dreaming Dexter or whatever it's called. I'm so obsessed with Dexter right now. It's not even funny. I'm trying to read 100 books this year. And so far I've read two books completely, read a good chunk of a third book that sucked. So I shelved it. And I'm working on my third full book. So I'm getting there. Like 98 more to go. So Darkly Dreaming Dexter is certainly on the list. And finally, the number one show of 2021, Mayor of Easttown. Mayor Sheehan, an office police investigator in a small Pennsylvania town, investigates a brutal murder as she tries to keep her life from falling apart. I was first introduced to Mayor of Easttown at the Emmys, and I thought to myself, God, that looks dull. Then I saw Evan Peters won for his role in the show, and then I thought to myself, Evan Peters plays lunatics, and he wouldn't be in anything dull. Ironic, I later find out, because this character that he's playing is a really centered, chill, calm, nice boy, man, boy, you know, you know what I'm saying. Evan Peters falls into both categories. I popped this on like out of the blue, knowing no spoilers or anything really about what it's about. I started watching the first 30 minutes or so, and it was in fact very dull. But even in the dullness, I was completely taken with the setting. I felt dropped into this place. The set design, the wardrobe, the very specific accent from a very specific region of Pennsylvania. I was like, there is something here, something familiar feeling that isn't familiar to me at all. They created that atmosphere. It's so fucking genius in hindsight. They set you up make you feel safe, they plop you into a dull place, and then they drop the fucking load on you. And you are in this safe, familiar space, so it hits you a hundred times harder. And that's just the main twist, the main punch to the gut. They trickle small, uncomfortable moments, but moments that also feel familiar, maybe not so safe, but things that we can all relate to, like a troubled family or maybe a douchebag parent, baby troubles, someone you love addicted to drugs and raising hell in your life because of it. Small, tense moments. Nothing we as viewers can't handle even if it hits too close to home. Do not let the familiarity and the seemingly bleak beginning fool you. By the end of the first episode, you will be fucking rocked, shaken to your core, and the gut punches, they just keep coming over and over and over and harder and harder, and you will suspect everyone. Everyone is suspicious and could be guilty of anything. Everyone could be involved altogether. It could be just one person. It could be the whole fucking town. It's everyone and no one at 
the same time. And even after you say, no, that's too crazy, or you think, no, that's too obvious, or wait, maybe not. Maybe there is something there. No, but what about that guy there, or him, or her, or them together? He's an outsider. We can't trust him. What's his deal? And still, after considering everything, by the end of the last episode, your mind will be fucked. Kate Winslet gave a performance that cannot be praised enough. She was a real-life, middle-aged, normal-looking woman who didn't give a fuck about her hair or her makeup. She was going through it, dealing with a lot of bullshit in life, and had a job to do, and kids to raise, and a mom to take care of. She was Mayor Sheehan. She was a real-life, middle-aged, normal-looking woman who didn't give a fuck about her hair or her makeup. She was going through it, dealing with a lot of bullshit in life, and had a job to do, and kids to raise, and a mom to take care of. This show was extraordinarily dark, but it's gripping. It reminded me of Euphoria, in a sense, like the tone and the vibe with how chilling it was and being like an addictive kind of chilling. I watched Mayor of Easttown and Euphoria, actually, almost all in one sitting. Uh, I recommend taking it one or two episodes at a time. The episodes can be really dark and can bring you down if that sort of thing affects you. But if you can handle it, you need to watch Mare of Easttown. We are moving on to the best and worst movies of 2021, and we are starting with the worst again. Coming in at number 10 is The Unforgivable. Ruth Slater, a woman released from prison after serving a sentence for a violent crime and attempts to re-enter society. Wait, is that, does that even make any sense? I feel like maybe that's just me. I feel like that's not a real sentence, but whatever. She must try to put her life back together again in a world that refuses to forgive her past. I really just disliked this movie. I felt like it was messy and my thoughts on it are messy. Sandra Bullock was not genius in this film. I'm sorry. Visually, okay, visually it was stunning. It was really beautiful, but they really tried to turn this film that was supposed to be a drama into this like intense thriller, psychological thriller situation, and it just didn't work for me personally. There is like a big twist, so I won't give too much of this away if you want to watch it, but my biggest issue with this was that the, how do I explain? The casting, I guess you could say, which again, this isn't a spoiler, this is just casting on its face, was an issue. Sandra Bullock is a beautiful 60-year-old woman. She looks amazing, but she seemed to be cast as someone much, much, much younger, which is fine. She can pull that off. But she was also playing that character in flashbacks, which from my understanding, and I could be way off, that character looked or seemed not looked to be around 16 years old based on all the other information we were given within the movie. So that was kind of weird. And really everything surrounding the twist didn't quite make sense. Overall, The Unforgivable felt like a movie I have already seen a hundred or so times, so I didn't quite understand the hype. I really didn't like it at all. Number nine, the new Cinderella. Ambitious orphan Cinderella gets some magical help from her fab G to realize her dreams, making a life for herself selling her signature dresses. 
If you have seen this film, I feel like there's really no explanation necessary. If you haven't, uh, well, this movie really tries to do something and ends up doing nothing. The writing and dialogue is awful. Camilla was a bad actress. Uh, the singing wasn't all that great, but I liked the mashups. The original lyrics, I thought, could use some work. What I will say I enjoyed is the ending and the twist, I guess you could say. But overall, Girl Boss Cinderella was a cool step forward in theory, but they failed the execution. Number eight, Antebellum. Successful author Veronica Hanley is finishing a book tour before she returns home to her husband and daughter. But a shocking turn of events is about to upend Veronica's existence, plunging her into a horrifying reality that forces her to confront her past, present, and future before it's too late. I'm not going to spend too much time harping on this film because my feelings are pretty simple. I didn't like it because the pace was an absolute nightmare. The acting was so-so. And yet again, we have a movie where the twist doesn't really make sense. I had no idea what was happening the entire time, but not in a cool or engaging way that I enjoyed. It was almost like the writers had a movie written and ready to go and then changed the twist overnight. It really sucks because the concept and the message they were trying to convey was incredible. I just wish it had been done better and with a more convincing story, and I was really disappointed. Number seven, Hustlers. Working as a stripper to make ends meet, Destiny's life changes forever when she becomes friends with Ramona, the club's top money earner. Ramona soon shows Destiny how to finagle her way around the wealthy Wall Street clientele, who frequent the club. But when the 2008 economic collapse cuts into their profits, the gals and two other dancers devise a daring scheme to take their lives back. This film had an all-fucking-female cast and a story that had some really fucking cool potential, and they did nothing with it. Nothing. The women were hot, and J-Lo got to show us she's still hotter than any of us will ever be when, in what is she, like 50? 50-something? 50 Mid-50s? Almost 60? And she can dance like her skills. The skills of all the girls in this movie who showcased their dancing were incredible. But the story was boring and went nowhere. How is a movie like this boring? How how does that happen? Also, I love how they promoted the fuck out of Cardi B in this. And she was in it for like two seconds, I think. And to be honest, she did nothing with those two seconds. It wasn't like something that I could have lived with or without. It contributed pretty much nothing. So whatever. I just thought that was funny. Back to the movie itself. It was extremely repetitive and shallow. We were supposed to be emotionally invested in these women and their stories, but I didn't. I don't know about you. I felt no connection to them whatsoever. It was a really wasted opportunity to share the upbringing of these women or even details about their kids. Even a flash of some background to make us care about these people would have helped. And, you know, it was a real letdown. I was actually pretty interested in this movie. Number six, Death to 2021, a satirical look at the dread and occasional delight of 2021, featuring archival footage and commentary from fictitious characters. This was so unfunny. It was like boomer cringe and they need to end it with this one. 2020s was, well, honestly, like I really don't remember, uh, but this one was just a poor, unfunny attempt at satire and it was really obnoxious and that's all that I have to say. Number five, Deadly Illusions. The line between fiction and reality begins to blur when a struggling writer hires a woman to watch over her twin children. 
So a few episodes back, I did a whole episode on the lowest rated shit on Netflix, and I didn't want to make this list entirely the same as that one because that would be too damn easy. All of those were bad movies, but I kind of knew going into them that they'd be bad movies. But I had to include Deadly Illusions for a few reasons. One, it came out this year, if I'm not mistaken. And two, I actually thought this was going to be not so bad. When I was looking at the summaries for all of the lowest rated shit, I was like, oh, this one actually sounds pretty interesting. And Charlotte's in it from Sex and the City. And, you know, it could be something not so bad. I bitched about it a lot in that episode. But basically, Deadly Illusions was like this weird mix of a Showtime mature rated film on at 3 a.m., and a psychological thriller, and it failed at both of those things. But it was fantastic comedy. Like, I truly had full belly laughs multiple times during this film. Number four, Don't Look Up. Two low-level astronomers must go on a giant media tour to warn mankind of an approaching comet that will destroy Earth. This movie, how do I explain Don't Look Up? I just, just finished this. I felt like this movie was a two and a half hour long SNL sketch. Nothing was subtle. It was awkward and clunky. And honestly, what a shame for the talented folks like Leo and Jen to be dabbled in this. I don't think anyone could miss the message of humanity is wrapped up in the wrong shit and us as humans are stupid and superficial and need all information, no matter how crucial it is, to be given to us on a beautiful platter with a stupid superficial shiny bow. We are beaten to death with it. No subtlety whatsoever. The editing was so frustrating. It was like trying to be artsy fartsy and instead it felt jumbled and messy. I think Jennifer Lawrence was the only tolerable character and that was really the only standout performance because the other characters were really one-dimensional and flat and or just downright annoying beyond what was effective and purposeful. I knew going into this that it probably was not going to be good for the same reason that I was intrigued. It had all of these A-list celebrities and it felt like it was overcompensating for something. At the same time, it was exciting to hear about. I remember all the hype leading up to it and reporting on it and whatever and I was like, wow, oh my god, exciting. But then when I really sat down and was about to put it on, I was like, this doesn't feel like it's going to be good. I love the messages that it's conveying. I really do. But ultimately, Don't Look Up didn't execute those themes in a way that was entertaining or enjoyable for me. It was just kind of obnoxious. Number three, he's all that. An influencer who specializes in makeovers bets that she can transform an unpopular classmate into a prom king. I don't think I've ever complained about a title more ever on this show. Maybe Riverdale. Maybe Riverdale. So I'm going to keep this short and sweet. I'm sick of bitching about it. You're sick of listening to me bitch about it. I didn't like Addison Ray and her acting. I didn't like the product placement. I didn't like the cringe dialogue, the bad acting. Did I mention the product placement? I felt like it was the pinnacle of influencer culture in film and I hated it so, so much. I felt like I was sticking forks in my eyes the entire time I forced myself to watch this. So yeah, that's how I feel about He's All That. Number two, time is up. 
An accident forces Vivian and Roy to come to a stop and try and reclaim their lives one minute at a time to start living in the present. The acting in this movie could not possibly get any worse. Like truly Bella Thorne and the main dude, I don't know his name, are neck and neck for the high school theater kid that takes everything beyond seriously and does the most and is just not good at it. I need to vent about a scene because this scene stayed with me long after I was done with this film. There's this scene that's supposed to be all dramatic and beautiful and really tries to do something, something important like an Oscar-worthy scene, right? It's Bella Thorne in a hotel room while Billie Eilish is playing. Side note, in my notes I put while Billie Eilish was playing and it autocorrected Eilish to Rikishi, like that wrestler. Oh, those were the days. Oh, those were the days. Now I want to play Smackdown really bad. Anyway, Bella's in a hotel room, Billie Eilish is playing, and she's just mesmerized by this fugly green hotel room and she's rolling around on the bed and the bad boy is at the door and there's this invisible string of love connecting them right Bella doesn't know he's there then she abruptly gets up and douses herself in something I immediately recognized it's called Tom Ford Sole Blanc Shimmering Body Oil, which, if you don't know, is overpriced, good, beachy-smelling oil with a ton of glitter in it. So she douses her chest in this stuff, right? And this is a $100 bottle, this Sole Blanc Shimmering Oil. Cut to the very next shot, and she has her chest pressed against a white pillow. Now, if you don't know, glimmer shimmer oils are very, very, very prone to transfer. That's all. She got her gloopy glitter all over the nice white hotel pillow, and that just it irritates me so much. And not even cheap shimmer glitter oil, like expensive shimmer glitter oil. What was the point of any of it? What was the point? Stupid. Hated it. I was so mad. Also, what was the story? Where, what was the main storyline? Again, just like Bridgerton, did it even exist? They threw in these heavy moments that are supposed to be very intense and emotional and they were just funny. Like there was one scene, I'm, it was, it was, I can't. You know what? Fuck it. Spoilers. If you don't want to hear how fucking, what is this? Time is up. Something like don't look up. If you don't want to hear this spoiler for time is up, just skip ahead. I'll give you five, four, three. Okay. This girl is, I think she was like arguing with the guy or whatever. And then she gets hit by a fucking car or a bus or something. And I was like, this is Regina George from Mean Girls. And it was fucking hilarious. It was really, really great comedy, but really bad writing and even worse acting and just fucking corny beyond. It's not even a good option for like a cheesy romance. If you want that vibe, again, you know, I said I like very little romance, like cheesy stuff. I couldn't even tell you like what makes me like a romance story. I like that after we collided, the first one. I haven't watched any of the others. So if you want like a cheesy romance, go with that instead, in my opinion. This was just a waste of fucking two hours of my life. I should have known. But you know what? I was like, oh, maybe let's, let's try it. Let's see Bella Thorne and her acting chops. How fucking naive of me. Number one, Diana the Musical. Diana is a musical with music and lyrics by David Bryan and Joe DiPietro and a book by DiPietro based on the life of Princess Diana of Wales. A filmed performance of this musical was added to Netflix on October 1st, 2021. 
What a fucking slap in the face to Diana. And I say that not giving a shit about royals or really knowing anything about them. But like, it is what it is. That's not the main reason that this was awful. Uh, where to begin? The musical, the music, the the songs had this really catchy rhythm, like really, you know, musical, theatery, like cute shit, right? But my God, the lyrics. I'm just going to share a few and that's going to be my explanation because it's a fucking musical. You kind of have to nail the music. All right, I'm no intellect, but maybe there's a discotheque where the prince could hear some prince and would all get funkadelic. Then again, don't create a scene. You're auditioning to be his queen. And if queen were playing now, Freddie Mercury would slay it. As Freddie Mercury's number one fan, kindly go fuck yourself. Keep the queen's name out of your mouth. Thank you. Better than Guinness. Better than a wank. Snatch a few pics. It's money in the bank. Honey, you are money in the bank. Just poetic. He could try something sly. A bitch on wheels and six inch heels. I actually kind of fucking live for that. That's actually kind of sick. You'll rock the place in silk and lace. That maybe lacks a bit of taste. What better way to impress than to show a flash of flesh? Show how about this fuck you dress? This fuckity, 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 fuck you dress. I think that speaks for itself, but I'm just going to throw in my favorite piece of dialogue that I have shared before when I talked about this musical. I assumed your husband gives you riding lessons. He's tried. He's not very good. Well, perhaps he doesn't have the proper horse. And do you have the proper horse? Your royal highness, I think you'd adore my horse. Like, this is fan fiction. This is fan fiction in a musical. And we cannot allow it in any capacity. Easily Diana the Musical was the worst movie I have watched on streaming by leaps and bounds. There were no redeeming factors to it whatsoever. And finally, we are moving on to the best films that I have streamed in 2021. And to be honest with you, this was a challenge. I found it very hard to round up 10 movies that I could say I really, really, really loved this year. There were a lot of movies that I really enjoyed watching, even though I wouldn't put them in my favorites list. And it was the same thing with shows. So I want to give my honorable mentions for films and shows. The Crime Scene Cecil Hotel documentary, the Brittany Murphy documentary on Hulu, WandaVision, Shadow and Bone, Chicago Party on, Castlevania, The Witcher Season 2, The Great, Demon Slayer, The Conjuring the Devil Made Me Do It, Hawkeye, The Mandalorian, The Real Housewives of Atlanta I finally watched, the new season of Tiger King, I feel like this one was even better than the first. And of course, Britney V. Spears. I'm sure I'm forgetting something or another here, but these are the critical ones on the top of my head. And as far as the movies go, I wasn't going to just pick any random movies to get to 10. Do you know what I'm saying? I didn't want filler movies, so I only have eight favorite movies from this year. So we are going to start with number eight. Horror Noir, A History of Black Horror. This documentary came out in 2019, and it's based on the 2011 nonfiction book, Horror Noir, Blacks in American Horror Films from the 1890s to present. And that was written by Dr. Robin R. Means Coleman. It deep dives into the history of black people in and around horror films. It celebrates their accomplishments while also recognizing a ton of harmful stereotypes and problems that have occurred around the horror 
horror genre. You get to see the progression and evolution year by year by year, while getting some really wonderful and educated insight by the actors themselves, and also from prominent and relevant minds in the horror realm. It's absolutely spectacular. You can watch it on Shudder as well. And again, that's available through AMC Plus, just like Eli Roth's History of Horror. Number seven, Malcolm and Marie. A filmmaker on the brink of Hollywood glory and his girlfriend, whose story made his career, find themselves pushed towards a reckoning as a single tumultuous night decides the fate of their relationship. Ugh, this film is such a beauty. It's directed by Sam Levinson, who is the creator and director of Euphoria, and it also stars Zendaya from Euphoria. John David Washington also stars, but obviously he's not in Euphoria like the other two. Everything about this film from top to bottom, the writing, the way the shots are set up, it's literally art. John David and Zendaya are beyond brilliant. It's gut-wrenching and beautiful to watch every single minute of this movie. It's certainly not an easy movie, especially if you don't like a slow pace or dialogue-based stories. For example, speaking of Euphoria, um, the episode with Allie and Rue where the entire episode is them just talking in a diner, just that constant flow of really great, rich dialogue, that's exactly similar to the Malcolm and Marie style. I also, while watching it, had my own little conspiracy theory that that the character Marie is somehow Rue all grown up and I thought that was really fascinating. I don't want to give the plot away or any of the you know major details but that was my conspiracy theory. I love that it was shot in black and white. That for me was so important and adds a lot to my viewing. It's a stunningly simple and fucking real film and there's so much symbolism tucked into little details and it's oh I love it. The tagline I believe was it's not a love story. I literally wrote that in my notes it's not a love story and I remember as I'm speaking that that was the tagline. I think it was like this isn't a love story. It's about two people in love. It was toxic at times and really passionate at other times and you know I really enjoyed it. I definitely recommend, especially for Euphoria fans. Number six, I care a lot. A shady legal guardian lands in hot water when she tries to bilk a woman who has ties to a powerful gangster. This movie, this movie, oh man, people are really divided on this movie. I personally was captivated by it. It's very simple for me. I was highly entertained. Rosamund Pike is an incredible actress. She plays a psycho like no one else. It's not some feel-good movie. It's very disturbing, especially to those who may have elder people in their life or who have or possibly will go through a similar situation that happens in this film. I noticed that seemed to be the biggest issue with people who didn't like this film. A lot of people felt like this was glorifying sociopathic behavior, but like, that's nothing new for television. Loads of people watch shows like Dexter, or they watch Sherlock Holmes, uh, then there's Tate Langdon from American Horror Story. That Dr. House guy, boomers love that fucking show. What I think happens is sometimes movies and television shows get a little too close to home, and humans are very sensitive creatures. If a nerve is struck, they get defensive, and that's totally fair. True art comforts the disturbed and disturbs the comfortable. Another argument people who didn't like this film had was a gripe I've had with a lot of these movies that I've mentioned earlier, and that is the believability being not there. The difference for me between I Care A Lot and The Unforgivable is I Care A Lot was actually fucking entertaining. I can suspend belief for a good time, and I Care A Lot is a grossly good time. 
It does not mean I want the shit that happens in this movie to happen in real life. I root for Dexter and he's a serial killer who manipulates everyone around him. It's just entertainment. It's just a oh my god moment when you're watching TV. It's not that deep. Give it a watch. It is a long movie, but it's endlessly exciting and masterfully written to keep you wondering what is going to happen next. Also, Peter Dinklage is in it. Do I need to say more? Number five, Halloween Kills. The nightmare isn't over as unstoppable killer Michael Myers escapes from Laurie Strode's trap to continue his ritual bloodbath. Injured and taken to the hospital, Laurie fights through the pain as she inspires residents of Haddonfield, Illinois. Illinois? Illinois. I pronounce the S at the end just to piss people off. I know it's Illinois. Illinois. Anyway, to rise up against Myers. Taking matters into their own hands, the Strode women and other survivors form a vigilante mob to hunt down Michael and end his reign of terror once and for all. This was another one that had people really divided. In my humble opinion, 90% of the people who claim that they did not like this movie are the ones that are way too cool for any horror movie remake. Typical movie snobs. Nothing will ever make them happy. It's just not not cool enough to like new shit. I thought this movie was brilliant. I thought the beginning was absolutely genius. The way they made it so believable. That's what I'll say. Just in case, you know, again, no spoilers. I don't want to give anything special away from this movie, but they did such an incredible job with that. It also did a great job developing those relationships that we really already had established with these characters that we love. And it made us love them even more. I think the comedy that was woven into this film was incredible as well. It's got Danny McBride's fingers all over it. I think it really respected Carpenter's original vision, but it wasn't married to it. It had its own identity within the franchise, and I think that's really important, and it's also really hard to do. But overall, I thought that aside from this looking beautiful, the dialogue being amazing, the characters being amazing, I really just had fun. And on a final note, what I will say is that if you are someone who is a hater of Halloween Kills and you support Halloween 2, your point is always invalid. Just saying. Number four, passing. In 1920s New York City, a black woman finds her world upended when her life becomes intertwined with a former childhood friend who's passing as white. This film was chilling. It almost felt like a horror movie, like a diabolique at points throughout it. I can't say enough how beautiful it looked and how beautiful the writing was, how tremendous the acting was. The symbolism was wrapped in a neat little bow in every fucking scene. The director and writer Rebecca Hall, which this was her directorial debut by the way, which bravo, she shared that her and the set designers were discussing the main character Irene's home design. And the set designer was like, oh, well, this is how it would be for this time period and this and that and da 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 da. And Rebecca was like, no, 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 no. Irene wouldn't have any of that. She wouldn't have decor because she has no clue who she is, let alone how she would decorate her home. There was a very obvious attention to detail, and that was very, very evident. Truly, this was a horror film to me. It wasn't your quintessential murdering maniac or vampire horror. This was different. The opening scene gave me that vibe right away. Then there was a scene with Claire, who was the black woman that was passing as white, sitting with her husband. And he starts talking about how racist he is, how much he hates black people. And then he goes on to say, oh my God, my wife gets so tan. And how he gives her a cute little nickname because of this. A cute little pet name. 
that starts with the letter N. Yeah, that moment, the look on Claire's face and Irene's face convinced me, regardless of what anyone else believes, whether the director says so, whether everyone else on the planet, you know, says no, it's not. This was a horror film to me. A beautiful, smart horror film. First and foremost, in my mind. Fucking terrifying. Number three. Dune. Paul Atreides, a brilliant and gifted young man born into a great destiny beyond his understanding, must travel to the most dangerous planet in the universe to ensure the future of his family and his people. As malevolent forces explode into conflict over the planet's exclusive supply of the most precious resource in existence, only those who can conquer their own fear will survive. This film was near perfection. Dune is a very, very, very dense fantasy. It's other time, other place, other world, and nothing is familiar. For me personally, that can become very overwhelming and messy. And with Dune, that's what I was really worried about. I started watching the original with uh, from David Lynch. I never got to finish it. I think I fell asleep <laughs> literally every time I watched it. But it wasn't because it was bad. It was just that, you know, I'm a tired bitch. But I knew this would be epic. And I was hoping I could keep up with the names and laws and worlds and traditions and storylines. Because again, that's all a very hard gift to wrap neatly and concisely. Do you love how I'm relating everything to presents with bows and wrappings and whatever? I still got Christmas on the mind, I guess. Anyways, everything was perfectly understandable, easy to keep up with, and it did so without watering down the story. If you have not seen it yet and you love big epic fantasies or sci-fi, this is a definite must-watch. This also was massive inspiration for Star Wars and Game of Thrones and all of those legendary otherworldly stories. So I think if you like those, you'll really enjoy this. Number two, being the Ricardos. In 1952, Hollywood power couple Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz faced the personal and professional obstacles that threatened their careers, their relationship, and their hit television show. Oh my god, this movie. Oh my god. I literally watched this maybe the day it came out. And I really didn't know what to expect. I obviously know I love Lucy like every other conscious human being. My grandmother has I Love Lucy decor all over her house and the Vita Mita Vegemin poster. And she has like every episode on DVD. She's a super fan. So I knew Lucy and I knew the immense impact that she had. But I never knew how brilliant Lucille Ball was. Just to get this out of the way. And then we'll get back into the genius of Lucille Ball. I didn't even recognize Nicole Kidman. I'm pretty certain she was wearing prosthetics. Like, I was very confused. I still haven't looked into that. I keep meaning to see if she was wearing prosthetics, but it doesn't matter. It was a beautiful transformation. She did such a great job. I had little to no expectations for this film, but I was excited for the idea itself. And I think they hit a home run with this. I, I really, really do. It was a movie with like documentary bits woven into it, like little interviews sprinkled throughout. It wasn't weird though. It was done really well. It didn't feel abrupt and it gave context to a scene. So we weren't dropped into this new scene that we knew nothing about. It was a really nice vehicle to move back and forth in time. Back to the genius of Lucille Ball. Holy shit. She really, really, really was brains, beauty, 
and hilarious. She knew exactly how to play dumb enough to get what she wanted around fragile men at the time, but she did it with her pride intact. She didn't want to be the idiot, and she was very protective of her brand, and she was extraordinarily protective of Lucy. There were these moments when they captured so perfectly her visualizing a scene and seeing how the scene would play out, and she would add little details that made iconic moments in the show. For example, in that classic episode where they go to the last stomping uh, winery and Lucy loses her earring that was Lucille's idea she saw that at least that's what I'm assuming it seemed like it was a true event she was very particular on body comedy and comedic timing and she did it well obviously look at I Love Lucy's legend being the Ricardos 10 out of 10 and I'm sure this will be a contender at the Oscars not a doubt in my mind it'll at least be nominated for a few things it better be and number one the harder they fall. When an outlaw discovers his enemy is being released from prison, he reunites his gang to seek revenge. The opening scene of this movie made me want to turn it off entirely. It was a lot for me to watch, but I am so glad I stuck with it because obviously it's my number one movie. It was fantastic. It was perfect. Where to even begin? Number one, we'll start with the soundtrack. 10 out of 10, amazing. Uh, and speaking about the first scene, might as well say this, the violence is immense. Sometimes it can almost feel like cartoonish and like that intense. Sometimes it's so intense that it's almost like cartoonish, so it doesn't affect you. But then there are other times, like with the opening scene, that it's deeply, deeply disturbing. I'm weird. I can handle violence in horror movies, but in any other movie, it like gut punches me. I really was having an anxiety attack with the opening shot. Genuinely in a panic. It was beyond disturbing. But if you can get through that scene, the movie is out of this world. The beginning of the movie opens with a sentence of text that reads, while the events of this story are fictional, these people existed. And that is extraordinarily important. It's informing the general public about the existence of black cowboys, which the majority of people didn't know existed. The story about the protagonist Nat Love seeking revenge against the man who killed his family, all that is fictional, but it's a nice blend of the fiction and the facts, like that inspiration behind it. It's like a juiced up history. The same thing with Idris Elba's character, Rufus Buck. He founded an outlaw gang and committed a number of robberies and murders in 1895, including killing the U.S. Deputy Marshal. But then there were some other characters that were kind of just like glamorized for the movie that I saw thought was pretty cool like stagecoach mary she was a famous singer in the film but her character was named after the first african-american mail carrier in the u.s the real stagecoach mary that delivered mail did also carry a gun though so pretty badass i was so shocked by the characters and the story and just how beautifully it all flowed i normally find westerns very boring really any late 19th century stuff is just boring to me in general but this story I I didn't even realize that it was so long it just every moment was perfectly paced the characters were funny and engaging and it just felt like I was rooting for everybody I don't even know where to start with the actors there's Regina King that I mean what a performance unbelievable Idris Elba he was made for this role a smooth calm cool-headed villain perfect Jonathan Majors was genius as always RJ Siler or Kyler as Jim Buckworth was so precious and so funny Danielle Deadweiler was 
absolutely just amazing and I hope to see her filmography grow I'm certain it will every actor and actress did a five-star job like all Oscar worthy the visuals were beautiful the ode to Chadwick Boseman that was very subtle the harder they fall was just a perfect movie if this film gets snubbed at the Oscars I don't know what I'll do probably bitch a lot Thank you so much for hanging out with me and my sick behind during this long ass best and worst of streaming 2021. This was a lot of fun. It was nice to reflect on the past year. I hope you have some new titles to check out after listening. You definitely need to watch Mare of Easttown and The Harder They Fall, if nothing else, if you haven't already. That's your homework. Today, I'd like to spotlight Asian Americans advancing justice. AAJC is a national nonprofit founded in 1991 to protect civil and human rights. As a national advocate for Asian Americans based in Washington, D.C., they serve our country's newest American community by promoting justice for all Americans, empowering their communities, bringing local and national constituencies together, and ensuring Asian Americans are able to fully participate in our democracy. Rooted in the dreams of immigrants and inspired by the promise of opportunity, AAJC advocates for an America in which all Americans are able to equally benefit from and contribute to the American dream. On their website, advancingjusticeaajc.org, they share various fact sheets and translated material to make sure you fully understand and fully exercise your rights as an American. They also have a list of programs they are associated with and, of course, ways that you can get involved and the option to donate if you are capable and comfortable doing so. Thank you so much again for listening. Be sure to check out the pod's Instagram at NCQH Podcast, my personal Instagram at L-E-A-A underscore M-A-R-Z. I have an entirely free collection of 31 poems that I completed called The Phases of a Great Winter Storm over on my personal Instagram all curated in a highlight titled Winter Storm. I'm also sharing my journey of reading 100 books in 2022 as well, if you'd like to follow along with that. I also have my larger collection of art and poems titled Myocardium available to purchase on Amazon. The link for that is in my personal Instagram's bio. You can also follow me on TikTok at L-E-A-M-A-R-Z-Z. I'm not very interesting and I think I'm funnier than I am, but if you want to give me a follow join in on the shenanigans, that'd be great. Until next time, stay caffeinated, stay streaming, stay strong. 